0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 11 of the Film Score Podcast. My guest this episode is composer Nainita Desai, who's probably best known for her work on the Netflix documentary series American Murder and the feature documentary For Sama. Her most recent work, which has just released, or is forthcoming depending on your location, is the feature documentary The Reason I Jump, which sheds light on and follows the lives of several non-verbal autistic young people. It's a really powerful and really eye-opening film, at least for me, someone who didn't really know a lot about the subject matter in advance. And Nainita's score is a really interesting mix between some experimental music and a collaboration with the sound design. Currently she's released a few singles, and the score itself is going to be released very soon. You can find Nainita on various social media as well as on her website and as always you can find me on my website filmscore.com, or on social media as well. Now this interview starts off pretty much in the middle of the action. She begins talking about the release of her score and her score broadly and it never lets up. So I hope you enjoy this interview and as always there's going to be more coming out. So let's go
1: this one's a funny one because um obviously we've just had the us release and then this but i'm releasing singles and music videos with the sing with the singles which is really cool so i'm just about to start work on the third single the second one's ready to go out so that's that's when that one will go out and the first one's gone out so it's been a couple of weeks and the third single will go out sometime towards the end of March I'm not sure yet and then the vinyl and digital release of the soundtrack and the film will be coming out in the UK we're hoping mid-April <laughs> depending on cinemas so because uh, it, it's got to come this one has to come out in theatrical cinemas in the UK because they don't have the infrastructure to release it virtually just like Kino Loba did in the States we'll see what happens
0: I think you had mentioned this at the first time you've released singles. Was that something on your end or something that kind of was pushed by the studio or what?
1: Um, no, well, I, I mean, I wanted to. I wasn't really shopping around for a record label, but I knew that I wanted to release the score. And the film company were behind it, of course, as well. And I was really wanting to release this Uh, physically on, on vinyl because of the texture and the aesthetics of the music and the score. I felt that it would lend itself really well to a vinyl pressing. So I contacted Mercury KX. They're not a soundtrack label, they're a sort of modern neoclassical experimental record label. And I really respect many of the artists on the label. And I just felt that the aesthetic of the music and the style of the music would really connect with Mercury KX and their listeners. And sure enough, I sent it to them and literally within three days they got back to me and said, We love this, we want to release this and I said, What about vinyl? And they said, Absolutely. They're really behind really behind it and that's been very exciting.
0: That's really cool. And it's also, you know, you saying that they're not a soundtrack-specific label. It's it's nice seeing, I think, more and more labels getting behind those releases. I've noticed it seems like even just in the last couple of years, there has been such an explosion in interest in film music, and especially film music on vinyl. So it's so great that you're getting more labels interested in it.
1: Yeah, and also for me personally, this score is actually, people always ask Film and TV composers, what's your sound? And because I'm a kind of a chameleon when it comes to different musical styles, it's a very difficult area for film and media composers, screen composers, because we can turn our hands to many different things. And for me, this score is the closest that I've ever got to to what my sound is combines different aesthetics and the the process and the experimental way that we created the score on this. So that's why I wanted to take it to a label that would really connect and have that understanding. This is more of a hybrid between a film score and a personal artist release.
0: Diving right into the score, you know, one of the things that's most noticeable about it, especially when you're watching the film, is the use of sound design in the score almost there are quite a few sequences actually where for instance there's the humming of a fan and and the clicking that it makes that slowly builds and then suddenly it's well not even suddenly you, you almost don't notice then it becomes the percussion or raindrops are falling and it's it's the same thing or the subtle hum of green boxes becomes a a heavier drone in the background. I thought that was a really interesting choice, and especially when the film itself is so built on these sensory experiences. Was that your plan the whole time?
1: Yeah, so the director, Jerry, Jerry Rothwell, he called me up and said, do you ever work with found sound? And I said, well, I started off in the industry as a sound designer. And so for me, sound is, sound whether it's music or sound there's no real difference there and we wanted to blur and blend between the two and interweave between the sound design and the music on this so that the two are really quite integral because the way that the autistic the non-speaking characters experience the world is a a very multi-sensory experience and for autistic people all their senses are heightened and they're very very sensitive to sound in the environment around them hence the decision to try and put the audience inside the mind and the headspace of these characters to make you feel as an audience as a viewer some way of trying to make you feel in as authentic way as possible what it's like to be inside their head and to experience the sound as they may possibly experience it but even then i mean it's not terribly authentic we we can't profess to being accurate but it's some kind of surrealistic impression of what it might feel like so that was a really really interesting challenge and i was brought on in terms of process really early on jerry's wanted me to create this cinematic, immersive oral experience to represent the world of Naoki, the original author of the book, and his writings. Where the sound design is a more abstract representation of Naoki's writings, the music veers towards representing the emotional state of being, and it gives the characters an internal voice, but obviously both work hand in hand. So I started off very, very early in the shoot, or even before the edit started at least, and while they were still filming, And I didn't have any visuals to work with at that stage. It was quite a few months before I got any images and pictures. It was very, very collaborative. I worked very closely with the director and the editor and the sound designer as well. And having come from a sound design background, taught me so much about how to use sound to drive the narrative forward and the storytelling forward through sound and music. So I wasn't precious about my music. (laughs) <laughs> if, uh, you know, I uh, think the most important thing was to tell the story in the right way through sound, through these amazing sequences that got handed to us. So I wrote a lot of musical ideas and experiments over 15 months that I was involved in the film, you know, more than a year. And these ideas were based on conversations with the director, based on concepts that we created. And we based these concepts of how to approach the score based on the the way that these autistic characters perceive the world around them. For example, one of the parameters that we created was autistic people see the, the detail in objects before they see the whole picture. As neurotypicals, you or I, we might walk into a room and see the room and what's happening and then focus in on little details like a cup or a vase of flowers on the table or, or a little light bulb that's on. But the characters in the film see the details in incredible detail before they see the whole picture unfold around them and so the way that i structured the music and some of the pieces was influenced by that idea you know it's like seeing little pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together and then having the whole picture unfold around you and another concept from uh, the book was the idea of repetition and oscillations So you touched upon the the ceiling fans and the table fans going round and round and the character Umrit in that scene and in other scenes, she finds circular motions and repetition to be a very cathartic, comforting release. So she will sway backwards and forwards in response to, you know, the sound of the fans going round and round. So I took and I was given a lot of found sound elements and I then integrate that into the music by chopping them up and creating rhythms out of them. And in the, in the fan piece, floating into focus, that particular piece on the soundtrack, I took these found sound elements and created rhythms out of them and created polyrhythms. And then out of that grows a piece of music that overwhelms you by the end, and that's hopefully sort of cathartic. And the other one well, of the other major aspects of the score is the fact that these characters are non-verbal; they're non-speaking. So we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to use the human voice? Sort of an obvious thing, you know, for the voice to represent their internal voice. So I took key phrases from the book, and that was in English, and translated it back into the original Japanese and took some key phrases like, for example, we are outside the flow of time, or beautiful circle, and I broke them down into smaller elements and recorded the broken up phrases of consonants, vowels, and syllables, deconstructed them, and then reconstructed them with various treatments and layers uh, using my own voice. I sung them in a very abstract, fractured way to mirror the internal world of the characters, and also with the vocals, Two of the characters in the film, they use this letterboarding technique. They have this sort of keyboard, and they, when they press on the keys, the voice will say, ya, ita, osaka, and it pieces them together. And that's how they communicate with the world, because these letters then form words. And so when you see the, those scenes in the film, and you see the letters coming up on the screen as graphics, I actually integrated my voice singing those Consonants and vowels, which are being pieced together as it unfolds on the screen in front of you. And that was sort of like a—I was going to say subtle, but it wasn't really that subtle. But hopefully, an interesting way to get across how they were communicating.
0: It's—it's it's funny because you know at the very end you're mentioning the subtlety versus non-subtlety of it all. But I think there there are so many pieces in there. It's so easy to watch or listen and in some ways to at least not consciously notice. I think a lot of it works on a a subconscious level as well, you know, especially like the the oscillation, having something that's cathartic or comforting, part of the effect of catharsis or comfort is almost an unknowing element of it. You're not sitting there comfortable and thinking, wow, like this is so comfortable. It's just working kind of subconsciously. And so you putting it into words like that, really then you think about it and go, oh yeah, all of that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Repetition is a very heightened for autistic people, uh, neurodivergent people. But you know, we, we like familiarity. People generally like the comfort of routine in our daily lives. You know, a lot of people work nine to five and we have meals at set times and we go on holidays at set times in the summer and the winter. And, you know, everything from our daily lives to the whole picture of our lives and what we expect and like our biological clock uh, or our biorhythms, we're all geared towards Regularity and routine. Even animals like cats and dogs—they'll wake up at a set time every morning, you know. And it's this inner clock in them that knows. And so, you know, if if my our routines are broken up, it can be slightly disorientating when we go on a a long flight and we suffer from jet lag because our body's not used to it. I guess it's a much more explicit way for the characters in the film to feel comfort in this repetition but uh, we all live by routines and regularity in our lives. And so one of the challenges was to bring out how to translate these ideas into music. Another thing was with instruments, having a unique sound palette. There are five or six characters, and we thought about using a different instrument for each character. So there's one girl, Justina, she's uh, from Africa, and she plays with these magical little beads on on her on her wrist, and that they're magical to her. she's fascinated by them, and they glisten and they glow and So I have this instrument called a a halo it's It's basically like a handpan, and it sounds like a tuned percussive instrument, and it's got this soft touch to it it's a beautiful sound and it and it sounds as though it could come from Africa, but it isn't it's quite an earthy earthy sound. That became her her instrument and her sound. And I used cellos and violins a lot and recorded them in a very experimental way. So the recording process was really experimental and, and different to how I normally work. And with Ben and Emma, they have this great friendship. It ended up being, uh, I used the acoustic double bass became her instrument and the acoustic guitar was, was Ben's sound. I also brought in woodwind the saxophone and the clarinet, which is used really subtly in the film. You hear it in the opening piece, and because of this circular idea and motion, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to have this breathing in and out, you know, just regular breathing? And I thought of having the saxophone and the woodwind and, and the clarinet to get that across and use it in a very breathy way. So we've got this, brought in this great saxophonist, Ben Vince, who's quite experimental and a bit like Colin Stetson in that sort of circular breathing techniques that uh, that they use.
0: Interesting. And and you can hear some of those lines carrying through the different sequences for the, the characters. If you haven't seen it, the documentary is kind of broken up into showing almost, uh, not quite vignettes, but it'll it'll focus on one of these particular characters for... minutes and then move on. So it it allows for that particular palette, but at the same time, it's not so overt either where it's here is this very distinct theme for Joss. Here's this very distinct theme for Justina. Like you said, there, there are the instruments that represent each one, but there's still the universality between them all where at the end of the day it is a common palette for the most part and that use of sound design so it's it's an interesting balance between keeping it unique but also keeping a, a common thread throughout and so one thing that i was thinking as well both in the the opening moments of the film but also talking about the the oscillation the comfort is the opening sequence is this dark night on a rocky shoreside, and the music is actually quite intense and it did kind of mirror my experience of watching the first few minutes of the film where i didn't really know what the tone was going to be and it is a little uncomfortable especially if you're someone who's neurotypical and doesn't have experience like that it's something that's just so different for you that sets you off guard once you become used to the film and, and that that music really guides you through was it a conscious effort
1: oh it was a it was a long process of trial and error I mean, we had all these ideas that I've explained to you about, you know, the perception of time is different, you know, looking at the detail in objects and uh, circular motions, using the human voice. And we had all these concepts and ideas that evolved over the months, but we didn't really know how, how the film was going to pan out. And, you know, even the idea we thought at first, we might interweave between all the characters. And then ultimately, after many months of editing, We'd ended up putting them into their little blocks, as you you picked up on. Um, you know, we focus on one character for 15, 20 minutes, and then we move on to the next and the next. And it just it was seem to be the, the most elegant way of making the you know the flow of the film and the, and getting the story across. And that opening scene, I think, is one of my most favourite cues. Actually, it was the first piece of music that I wrote. You know, I thought, I've got to have a theme for the film. And it quite often doesn't work out that way. It encapsulates all these different elements. So it's got the the vocals in a subtle way that you hear repeated. You've got the sound of the lighthouse that you see on the rocky sea shore with the lights going round and round. And I use this element of sound design to echo that visually on screen. What else do we have? I'm just playing the piece of music in my head. And we use the cello, which is quite a warm sound for the boy on screen as he's walking by the shore. It's got so many... uh, We've got the rhythms, we've got the string elements. And, of course, when the title card comes up on screen, you hear the vocals actually singing in syllables. The reason I jump, I actually say the letters... But I say it in a a, sing it in a fractured way. The reason I jump and layered it a lot and put lots of delays and echoes, so that when we hear the human voice, the director didn't want me to treat the vocals so much that they sounded electronic. And that happened a few times. You know, like sometimes I treat it and I push it a bit too much, and it sounded very. It sounded like a synthesizer and very robotic. I said, no, 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 we've got to strip it back, tone it down and really have a fine balance so that it still sounds like as though it's produced by a human voice, but it doesn't sound as though it's a normal voice. Like, you know, we wanted it to be more dreamlike and unintelligible. The other thing with the whole score is that all the music in there is created, all the sounds, either acoustic or or produced from an organic sound source. There are no synths in the score at all there's nothing that's electronically created there's one scene where you see the book the reason i jump on the table and it's open on a page and i have a rhythm going on and there's a little percussive rhythm that sounds like hi-hats and there's also this circular thing is actually my voice made to sound like where i'm breathing really rapidly in rhythm in time with the music and I created this sort of hi-hat sound with the breathing and I took the sound of a raindrop, a few raindrops and made them into a rhythm, percussive rhythm and then with the sound designer he then puts real raindrops as you see them falling on the book it's raining on the book and you hear the sound of those real raindrops so that the two are kind of blended together so sometimes, you know, a lot of what you're listening to you think is just pure sound design but it's actually stuff that's created by me. And it's it's sort of they're blurring the lines between the two a lot. So that was so much fun and just very experimental. And, and then we had a lot of fun in the mix as well, which was, uh, you know, some cues were actually constructed in the mix. One thing we did was, I don't know how nerdy you want me to get, but geeky, but there's one scene in the film set in a forest. And it's quite it's the darkest scene probably the darkest scene in the film where they're talking about the horrible experiments that were created in the Second World War. And so this boy in the film, he's walking through the forest, and you hear these recordings of these uh, audio voiceover or radio broadcasts about the experiments that were going on. And so I I created this piece of music using just cellos. And it was a proper piece of music when I delivered it to to the mix, but... I also deliver stems, all the individual elements. So when we were in the mix, we just felt that the piece of music wasn't working. And what we did was we took the impulse response from the forest. So when they were filming on location, they recorded the actual ambience, the impulse response of the space, and we put the musical piece, the sound of the cellos, inside the ambience of the forest. So it feels as though the instrument is actually inside the forest playing. We have did that a few other times where you're in the art exhibition and you hear the piano playing Umrit's theme, you know, this beautiful piece of music that is meant to represent the beauty of her artwork. And we put the piano in the space of the art gallery I didn't use my normal reverbs I gave a dry pure sound of the piano playing and then we put it inside the sound space of the of the art gallery that was another way of getting making it much more immersive and uh, where you're inside the space and inside the film that forest scene we really separated everything out and stripped things right back and almost constructed a new piece of music out of the cello lines that I that I had delivered So the piece on the soundtrack is quite different, a different mix to the piece in the film itself.
0: Interesting. As far as the the different piece between film and soundtrack, I guess, what is your approach to creating a a standalone musical release then?
1: it's a good question, Nick. Uh, You know, I, I wrote a lot of music that didn't end up in the film because I was writing ideas and sketches and themes and I held these very sort of improvisational, experimental recording sessions with various musicians. And and that's another story in itself. But with the soundtrack, I wrote these themes and pieces. And when it came, when I delivered them to the edit, and I would go backwards and forwards with music, things would change a lot because it had to work with the storytelling and it had to work with the sound design and so on. So when it came to working out the soundtrack release... I went back to my original mixes and the cues that I delivered to them. And, you know, it's a very different experience. I wanted it to work as a standalone experience where you could just listen to the music and it would flow as one and take you on a musical journey as opposed to the musical journey of the film. But I still, I mean, even with the track titles, they're very representative of these aspects of autism that are explained in the film. So, yeah, it was that was a, another journey in itself that I wanted to get right. And, again, another reason for releasing it on vinyl, where, you know, in this day of streaming, you just listen to one piece, uh, your favourite piece, and then you'll listen to another piece from another artist and another. And it was really important to me to, to have this experiential journey through the score as much as you do having it through the film as well.
0: What is it that you find about vinyl as opposed to the other physical media that lends itself so well or that will lend itself so well to this piece of music in particular?
1: The way that I recorded, the the, the actual tone of the score, the aesthetic of the score is that I didn't want it to be incredibly pure or clean in terms of the recordings and the sounds you know the, the way i recorded the cellos and the violins and the strings and the other instruments is that there's a roughness and there's a rawness to it and so even that you know where you hear the sound of the bow hitting the strings or even with the human voice you know with my singing voice i didn't want it to be so so perfect uh, i wanted wanted it to have a very organic ho- slightly homemade sound but that doesn't mean that it was recorded badly, you know, it was recorded very, you know, I had the best microphones and, and preamps and, you know, in my recording studio and everything's in tune and in time. <laughs> but I didn't want to suck the energy out of the performances by making it all pristine and clear. Like, for example, there, there are some cues with vocals on where you I kept some of the breaths in my vocals and... You can hear, almost hear the lip smacking. I edited it out at one point and I just thought it's lost all its character. And so I put some of those breaths back in. I kept it like that. And so releasing it on vinyl, again, is more like this. I love this touchy-feely thing about vinyl is that once you put the vinyl, the soundtrack on, you're not going to skip like you would with an MP3. You're not going to skip to another track. It forces you to listen to an A-side and then flip it over and have the B-side. And the way I order the tracks is very, you know, I just want to take the listener on this journey through the score.
0: I find that the preferable way to, to listen, particularly to film music, that it's generally designed to create an experience, either one that mimics the film itself, if it's released in a, effectively a chronological order, or one that is... Adjacent to the film, if it's moved slightly or has different tracks like yours. While people may love certain cues and want to listen to them over and over, and there's obviously nothing wrong with that, it does certainly suck out a lot of the impact of the piece in its entirety. Obviously, I appreciate that, and I do like the idea of it not being very overproduced, pristine, perfect. And you know, I know, I know that, that is obviously a trend with. Certain types of music, a lot of popular music in general, and you know it, it has its place. But you know, I think you're spot on that the the score for the reason I jump is not the place for that. So that choice makes perfect sense to me.
1: But conversely, I actually spent 15 months working on it, and I I was in control of every single little detail. So it's it's hyper produced in in terms of editorially. In that you know, I spent a long time on on each piece. But I wanted to keep that balance that out with keeping it a little bit slightly rough around the edges in, in a good way
0: right, yeah you didn't you didn't you know record it in twenty minutes and say, "All right, I'm done." I did want to ask about your working relationship with the sound designer. I mean that is something that in different contexts, I've had composers talk about where often they want to avoid having similar tones or pitches so that they don't clash with one another or blend together and reduce the impact of both at once. But this, you know, like we've mentioned before, is a much different piece of music and kind of piece of sound design. So, I mean, how did you and the designer work together to create this end result?
1: Yeah, I mean, we discussed that a lot. How are we going to do this? And ultimately, I think what we decided to do in certain, certain key scenes, we would collaborate more And in other scenes, we would do our own thing and then come together at the end. Um, So we'd have these discussions, you know, we'd take a scene like, for example, early on in the film, you see the big rhythmical uh, ceiling fan and table fan piece that introduces you to the character of Umrit. So it's very rhythmical, heavy on the polyrhythms. So I got given sound design elements uh, or found sound there. And I created my own version of the piece where I did my own rhythms and then I added other musical elements to it and delivered that in various stems and different layers of rhythms and so on for them to then work with. Conversely, the sound designer did his thing as well. His work wasn't tonal, because he was staying out of that space, but he would create his own rhythms out of those sounds. And so we when we got to the mix, before we got to the final theatre, dubbing theatre, we would do a mix and match of what we thought would work of mine and what was working from his. And then when we got to the mix, we would then pick the best elements and, and fuse them together and mix them together. So that was that was one way that we did it, and with the the Green Box Choir, with the this fifty piece choir that I recorded, which was myself recorded fifty times <laughs> in of my studio. Yeah, you know, we started off with the hum of these electrical generators, which the character Joss can hear, and to to Joss, the hum of this electricity sounds like a choir of angels, and that was one of the key phrases in the book that we thought, we started off with that, we thought, wouldn't it be great to create something that sounds off starting like electricity hums and then grows into a choir. So I recorded my own voice and layered it sort of in 50, 40, 50 times, pitch shifted it down so that I'd sound like a baritone or bass, uh, tenor voice, I changed the formants in the voice, I used granular synthesis a lot in the human treatments of the voice to um, play around, chop, which is which is basically chopping up the all the sound elements into tiny little fractions and then looping them together, which is what granular synthesis is in a very simplistic way. I'd then give that all in various stems to the sound designer and we would then go backwards and forwards working out the best way of piecing it together. Sometimes, you know, the sound did the job and I'd strip away some of the music. Um, so in the film, that's why you're getting different mixes to what you're getting on the, on the soundtrack. It was quite collaborative and quite experimental, but there was no set way of doing anything. That green box piece, when we got to the theater, that, we had an amazing time mixing that in surround uh, in 360 sound because we were taking elements and spinning them around the top. And, and we were increasing the width and the height of the mix in, in 360. But we, you know, the, the documentary aspects of the score were very normal in stereo. And then for the stylized sequences, that's where we really sort of increased the the width and the height, and we played around because everything that we did with the um, immersive sound mix had to have a reason. We didn't want to use it as a gimmick. You know, this is not a sci-fi film where you can have spaceships flying around and all around you. You know, we wanted it to have a a reason for doing everything that we did.
0: Interesting, and and that relates to the. storytelling differences between a scripted or feature film or tv series versus a documentary there are a lot of differences in how you have to approach the two in a film you can get the script first start working off of it and even though the final film is almost certainly going to be somewhat different it's not going to be a completely different creation than what you've first seen whereas especially talking about the reason i jump you're starting with these abstract concepts and you know maybe there's a rough idea of how it will turn out but you don't have us a, a real documentary isn't going to have a script so what are the different challenges that you face working on scoring a film versus on a, a documentary film
1: actually when you're working on feature documentaries they're not that different from working on narrative features and you know, I'll be brought in quite early on on feature docs and on on feature films. So I work very organically with the director and the editor, and they're going backwards and forwards with ideas. And on a feature, and and actually with the feature doc as well. Uh, after we've picture locked, I'll have a few weeks to work on the score as well. Sometimes it all depends on what, when you're brought in. You know, if I'm brought in late in late in the day. Then it's a, it's like you're going to default mode, and it's a kickballer can scramble to try and get all the music written as fast as possible. But um, I think the pressures come, the differences come with with TV on uh, TV documentaries. It's very pressured, and uh, you're working, having to work very fast, and you don't get to work from a script. But on feature docs, I do get given treatments, I have a lot of discussions and with the director about. Tone. I'll create musical mood boards so that, you know, we'll, work, we'll share playlists of music that's inspiring us and we'll talk about the tone of the series or the show. So we do have those creative discussions, but obviously with a, with a film, you have a film script and so sometimes I don't work from a script. Sometimes if I'm being considered for a project, I'll be sent a script to read and so I'll, I'll have in my mind ideas about the tone of the score just by reading the script but I'm actually a very visually inspired composer. It informs me in a different way when I get visuals thrown at me, as opposed to just abstract ideas or working from a script. You know, even when you have characters in a feature film or in a script, you can write themes for characters, but you can still do that. I still do that in documentaries, especially with the streamers like Netflix and Amazon and HBO. They're putting so much time and allowing so much time into the craft of documentaries, high-end documentaries these days, that I have as much time, if not more time, on documentaries than I do on features or, or drama series. You know, on a drama, you're lucky if you get a week to two weeks per episode sometimes. Whereas on a documentary, I can be working on a on an episode for five, six, seven weeks. If, or a one-off one-hour show, I might get ten or eleven weeks to to score a doc. So in terms of time, that's not a problem. I think budgets are a different thing altogether. can have more luxurious budgets to work with, getting in live musicians. But even on the feature docs I've done recently, like American Murder for Netflix, I brought in the London Contemporary Orchestra, and I recorded them during lockdown last year. So that was fun. And obviously on the reason I jump, I got to uh, bring in various musicians through the whole process. I treat two in the same, in a similar way. Video games, that's a very different thing altogether. I'm, I'm working on a couple of video games at the moment, and I'll be working on them for a very long period of time. That's a different experience and a different process. You're much more involved with the narrative team and the programming team and the artwork, and... You'll write across all the different aspects of the game and things will be written and created. You know, it's evolving in a similar way to how a film is made, but we're still delving into the unknown. So things change a lot with video games.
0: Interesting. And that's if we if we had more time, I'd love to dive into that, because frankly, I know absolutely nothing about video game music and i haven't talked with anyone about it and i i used to play quite a lot of video games when i was younger but don't anymore so it's it's just such a such an unknown to me and like i'd love to hear about it but unfortunately uh we don't have unlimited time
1: another time
0: yeah exactly getting into film and other media composition you're generally not doing it for accolades and to become filthy rich or anything but for you, you know, you've you've been doing this for a while, and recently you had last year for Sama, you had quite a lot of critical recognition for your score, and then the reason I jump has recently picked up a, a Cinema Eye Award and a uh, BIFA nomination. I think it, may, it might have been a Cinema Eye nomination, I don't remember. Is that sort of a critical and award recognition something that you particularly care about? Is it just a nice to hear, but you go on your way? I mean, what is your response to that?
1: You know, I mean, when you're working on something, I'm not thinking, oh, I want to win an award with this score <laughs> when yeah. I'm writing it. <laughs> because it's just, you know, the most important thing is just getting through the job. It's so, you know, it can be quite stressful and you're up against, you know, there's so many different factors you're thinking about. So, you know I just want to get through the project and do the best work that I can, and that ultimately the work and the creativity and working in a harmonious way with the team is the most- impo- is the primary thing that all all you care about i think it's it's like a bonus it's an extra when you are recognized you know it just it just tells me that people have connected with your work, and that's really special as well. I remember going to Cannes Film Festival with Forsama sitting in the theatre, in the cinema for the first time seeing the film up on the big screen and I looked around me and I and when you're working on something for a long period of time, whether it's weeks or months or even you know years on a project, you sort of lose that perspective because you're just working with your team, your small team and you don't know whether what you're doing is going to work or not or resonate with people emotionally. And so when I sat there in the cinema and I saw these grown men were crying around me, I thought, oh, wow, what's happening here? (laughs) You know, because I'm so close to the film, I can't see it with fresh eyes anymore. And I actually saw it through their eyes and ears. And I thought, oh, this is really connecting with people. And that's just the most amazing feeling, you know. And I think that, to me, is the reward when you see your work on screen whether it's a laptop screen or in the cinema which is the best way you know the ability to reach a wide an audience as possible is is truly wonderful and and to see people whether they love it or they hate it you know you know you can work on something controversial and it be you you have a very divided audience i think that's that's the that's the most rewarding thing for me so i mean of course i'm not gonna lie and say awards awards are great but you know, there's so much wonderful work out there that you can't possibly have your career based around, you know, well, I didn't get a BAFTA for that or an Oscar nomination, because there's such amazing work. And, and, and also awards, you know, was that that phrase I heard recently, awards don't mean anything until you've won one. <laughs> and then suddenly you win one. one, oh, this is amazing. But it's, it's not why I do it. And, I mean, it's nice to be acknowledged. And, and so I love it. You know, it's it's great to have these nominations. But, but there is so much work out there from many composers that I really admire and projects that I admire that think, oh, well, they didn't get nominated. That's a real shame. But there's just there's so much great work out there. So, you know, it's just the nature of the industry, I guess.
0: I do feel very spoiled because you're spot on. There's just so much great music out there. And it's both great for... Me and people like me, but I mean also the the films, the documentaries, the T V series, the games, that in so many ways that this is kind of a, a golden age for that music because there are so many great talented people doing it. We all we all couldn't be luckier to have it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think more now than ever before. I think the landscape is very broad and wide ranging and there's there's no set way of doing anything anymore there's so much more room for experimentation and execs and and broadcasters and commissioners and and the filmmakers they're much more open-minded to being bold because there's so much content out there now there's so much noise in terms of netflix and the streamers and hulu and hbo and all these guys and and then the normal the bbc and discovery nat geo so many channels that they have to try and find a way of standing out and one of the ways programs and shows can and films can stand out is by having a really distinctive bold score you know and it really helps enhance the tone and uniqueness of the show by having something really unusual that we've never heard before and find new ways of telling stories through through music so it's a great time to be a composer in this moment in time then in Previous decades, you know, it's not just the orchestral symphonic score. Yes, there's a place for that, but because of technology as well and what it enables us to do, we can do so much more now that is more challenging. We're challenging audiences' perspectives of the sonic worlds that we can be immersed in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And on that, note of uh, hopefulness and positivity. Let's stop there. Thanks, Nick. And thanks for joining me. It was was so nice. It was such a good documentary watch, such a great score to listen to, and so I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about it.
1: Thank you very much. It's been great to chat with you today.